Good morning, everyone. Hope you had a good week. Um, before we begin, I'd like to ask you a quick question. Have you seen the Avengers movie? Uh, perfect. <laughs> Thank you. Cool. If you haven't seen the movie, I'll just briefly recap it. The Avengers is a group of superheroes, and they're united together to fight against an alien invasion. And these heroes, they don't initially get along. They're all very radically different. Iron Man is this flamboyant tech millionaire. Captain America is just this gritty, gruff, old-fashioned World War II soldier. Thor is the son of a king from another realm. So they all have different backgrounds and strengths and different ideas about how the world should work and, and what they should do in it. So they bicker and they argue and they, they fight one another quite often. But they eventually put all their differences aside and fight the common enemy. There's this one scene where all the heroes unite and there's the big triumphant music and they're all fighting together and it's supposed to be this big spectacle. And we're supposed to look at them and say, they've put all their differences aside and they've really accomplished something. They're finally united. I bring this up this morning to highlight what kind of unity we shouldn't be striving for. We shouldn't be striving for this kind of worldly unity of put your differences aside and, and, and go do the one common thing. In many ways, this kind of unity can be selfish. We just shove the problems we have with other people under the rug, pretend they're not there, and just go about our business, whatever it is that we were to do, sometimes at work or school or wherever. That's not good enough. And that's not the kind of unity Christians should be striving for. So what is the kind of unity that we should be looking to strive for? Well, let's see what Paul for us has in Romans 15. The context of what Paul has said so far is pivotal in understanding this passage. It closely follows up with what he said in chapter 14. So we saw in chapter 14 that the main issues that were plaguing the Roman church at the time were Sabbath maintenance, if eating meat was permitted, and drinking wine. So diet, drink, and days, like Jason mentioned last week. Paul divides the two believers into stronger in faith and the weaker in faith. So the stronger had a less restrictive conscience and the weaker had a more restrictive one. So they were kind of more legalistic and governed themselves much more strictly than the stronger brothers did. So on the issues of eating meat and drinking wine and maintaining the Sabbath, Paul sides with the stronger brothers and identifies with them, but tells them not to lead their brothers to act against their conscience. And that leads us into chapter 15. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. As I mentioned before, Paul in these verses identifies with the stronger brother. But I would like to focus on is what he calls us to do in spite of that. He doesn't say what we would think he would say. He gives them a stern obligation to bear with the failings of these weaker brothers and to not please themselves. He tells them to please the weaker brother for their own good, to build them up, to, um, to build them up despite their theological misunderstandings and disagreements that they have with the stronger. So this mindset of dealing with arguments is very foreign to us here in the 21st century and 2021. We love being right. Debates to us are like wars to soldiers. We just gather up all the factual ammunition we can find and just want to mow down and conquer whoever it is our opponent is. We're aggressive and we're quick to attack when what we believe in is either questioned or even mildly challenged. We need only look to the worlds of Facebook or Twitter and sometimes the news to see this. 
But on a more personal level, a friend of mine who had a very different idea about who Jesus was uh, brought his convictions to me. And we really disagreed. <laughs> um, but instead of bearing my brother's failings and trying to build him up in the truth of who Christ was, for his own good, I decided to put my arrogant theological cap on and school him. Like the hairs that came up in the back of a dog's neck when it sees an intruder, I was right away on Google, on, in the Word, anywhere, just to disprove his claim. And that wasn't right, and that's not what Paul... It was the very opposite of, all, of, all, of Paul, <laughs> of what he commands us to do. Sure, I told myself I was doing the right thing, that I was showing my friend the truth, but the reality was I was protecting my pride. I was masking it with a desire to show him the truth, but really it was me that felt attacked personally because it wasn't what I believed. Do you feel that sometimes, this sense of pride in knowing that you're right and expect the other person to submit? Do you feel this sense of personal assault when someone brings something up that's very different to what you believe in? This is the situation I'm sure some of the stronger brothers must have found themselves in. Even Paul agreed with them. So that seems like the ultimate trump card to end any argument. We've got Paul on our side. But Paul doesn't tell these Christians to put an end to these quarrels, be done with it, and move on. He tells them they have an obligation to bear and support um, these Christians in their struggles and to not please themselves, not please the sense of pride that they have within themselves or please their senses of self and back their own opinions up. This is the very opposite of what our sinful nature a lot of the time leads us to do. In the first two verses, he puts all the focus on the weaker brother and for his good. He says, bear with the failings of the weak. Please his neighbor for his good. Build him up. He says, look, guys, I know you're right and I'm on your side, but loving your neighbor and bearing with him and supporting him is infinitely more important. And this ideology that Paul has, it isn't just lovey-dovey, peace-man, humanism of the 60s. It's grounded in the Word of God and the person of who Jesus Christ was. In verse 3, he states that Christ did not please himself. And then quote Psalm 69, a psalm that Jesus attributed to himself quite often. It's known as one of the messianic psalms. When we look at the, um, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me, uh, this verse states that the wrath of our transgressions deserved from God have fallen on Christ. When we look at the cross of our Savior, Jesus, we see the ultimate example of the strong bearing with the weak and not pleasing the self. Philippians 2, verses 5 to 8, perfectly sum this up. Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He doesn't get any more strong than being God. He doesn't get any more right than being God. Jesus was perfection. And we certainly don't get any more sinful than who we are or fallen. Christ didn't remain in heaven from the clouds and judge us like he rightly could have. He came down among sinners like you and me, related to us, fellowship with us, and then died on the cross, 
bearing all of our sins, and then sends his, the great comforter, the Holy Spirit, to build us up in him for our own good. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instructions, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we, we may have hope. So in verse 4, Paul makes it clear how much scripture, how important scripture is for growing in our faith. It's important to note that when he says this, the church only has the Old Testament. The Gospels weren't written yet. So now after recently just reading through the Old Testament for the better half of a year, I wasn't sure how to feel encouraged. We see the nation of Israel constantly rise and fall, and some of the stories of how God's people have missed the mark and have fallen so short can be really deeply saddening. But on the other side of that, on that coin, we see God's infinite mercy, his love, his steadfastness, his forgiveness. We see a God faithful to the promises despite Israel constantly and continually rejecting him. The prophecy that the Messiah would crush the serpent's head and cleanse the world of sin once and for all was constantly renewed in the Old Testament and fulfilled when Jesus died on that cross. God was faithful once and he will be faithful again. Another way in which the Old Testament would have been instructional and encouraging would have been how much it revealed about Jesus. These believers had no gospel, so the basis of their faith was just what other people told them. So when we look at the Old Testament, we see that Jesus fulfilled all the law and the prophets. So the entire Old Testament culminates in him and leads to him. This was strengthened their knowledge of their knowledge and faith in Christ, showing he was who he claimed to be like it does for us today when we reflect on like Isaiah 43 and other chapters that very clearly indicate who Jesus was and that he was the fulfillment of them all. It verifies Christ and his work. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul circles back to the initial point on church unity. He states, May God enable us to live in Christ-like harmony, that we may bring glory to God. It is this Christ-like mindset that brings glory to God because it follows Jesus' example. It's unlike worldly unity. In the Avengers movie, they simply just set aside their differences and, and fight a common threat. That, that's all. We're called to go so much more beyond that. This, this unity of the Avengers, it doesn't glorify God because it's not what Christ did. Christ loved us in spite of our failings, bore our failings and helped us move past them and that's what we're called to do with one another here. Not look at each other and see simple players on the same team. We should see brothers and sisters that we're willing to lay down our lives for. Like it says in 1 John 3.16, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But I could ask you, do you sometimes just see players in the same team and not a family in Christ? Jesus says in John 17, 21, they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me I have given to them, 
that they may, be, they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and love them even as you love me. This is how Christ-like unity glorifies God. This is why no other earthly kind of unity will cut it. The world is watching us. And the unity that we display right now is it very attractive. The analogy that Jason gave last week about churches dividing and creating different dominations over small issues, sometimes it's, it's eerily true in some cases. Christians fall out over politics, coronavirus and how we deal with it, vaccinations, and so much more. We shouldn't let these earthly matters break our heavenly bond. It's not going to be easy. But Christ's death on the cross wasn't easy either. And he did all of that for God's glory. So we should pursue unity in the same fashion. Value God and his glory above all else, like Christ did. Giving our own lives and striving to support one another. And build each other up. As Paul says in verse 7, accept one another as Christ has accepted you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So you may notice in your Bibles that verse 8 to 13 is under a different heading. This doesn't mean he's moved on to a different issue. I feel like the two are very much connected and he's just looking at the same point just from a different angle. So let's just go through it bit for a bit because there is a good deal here to unpack. Christ, um, Christ's role as servant. So many of the commentators stay on this verse that Paul means by servant for the circumcised was just to be their Messiah. So Christ became the Jewish Messiah to show God's truthfulness and faithfulness to the promises given to the patriarchs. So the patriarchs would be, patriarchs meaning the founders of the Jewish faith, so Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that the Gentiles, meaning the non-Jews, us, would glorify God for his mercy. Paul then goes on to quote four different verses from the Old Testament and subtly shows how it is written for our instruction. So let's just briefly go through them. He quotes 2 Samuel 22:50. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. Deuteronomy 32:43. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Psalm 117, uh, verse 1. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And Isaiah 11.10, the root of Jesse will come, even if, he, even if he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles have hope. So Paul it was, was very tactical in those verses that he uses, because each of them are from a different part of the Old Testament. He quotes one from the law, uh, two from the writings, and then one from the prophets. So Paul here is really just he's hammering home that final point that all of Scripture points to this idea that the Gentiles were to be united with the Jews and worshiping God, and that this would ultimately bring him glory. If we briefly take a look at the, the verses, the, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles, or rejoice, O Gentiles, praise the Lord, you Gentiles. So God's glory is always at stake. So these, yeah, these verses just show that the Jew and Gentile were to be united in, in praising God and that this would glorify him. And for us today, it means the same things that if 
these two people of different ethnicities almost are called to be united in praising God, then surely the Gentile camp should be united within itself too. So we know what we have to do and why we have to do it. The what of, of this is to be Christ-like in how we deal with one another and bearing our failings and building each other up. The why is that we may, with one voice, bring glory to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And now on to the how. We can't do this on our, on our own. We need to be in the Word of God. We need to constantly remind ourselves of the, word, of the cross of Christ and how he, bore, how he bore all our failings and recognize that we're all on the same level at the foot of that cross. Uh, Paul states in Galatians 3.28, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ. In Romans earlier on, he says, All fall short of the glory of God. So we're all in the same boat here. No one is higher or lower than anyone else. We're all, we're all one in Christ. We also need to be honest with ourselves that this is a team effort. We need brothers and sisters to hold us accountable. We need brothers and sisters to pull us aside when our prides or our sense of self gets insulted. We need people to call us aside and say, look, we need to prioritize things. We need to look at unity. We need, we need to be called aside when we focus on being right. We let that arrogance take hold of us. If you know how the Avengers saga ends, you know that the most selfish, self-centered hero of them all, Iron Man, lays down his life to save all of the heroes. Why don't we just skip all the space battles and just follow the example of Christ and come to the exact same end? I'll leave you with what Paul says in verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we could be together here at church on Sunday, and we thank you for this command and obligation that you've given us to be united, Lord, and that we actually we have a foundation in Christ for this unity, that this unity isn't just simple, we're on the same team, that we have the same objective, Lord, that, but that we have the one Savior, that we are one in Christ. I pray, Lord, that this week that you would just be with us, Lord, that you would give us this Christ-like mindset, Lord, and, and that all we do, all we say, do, and speak, we would do for you and for your glory, and that that would be your focus, not ourselves or who we are or what we think or the advance, advancements of our own personal agenda, Lord, but just you and your glory and just totally and wholly submit to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.